Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name's Scott. I'm an alcoholic. I can't uh, thank you enough for inviting me down. I'm just having a great time. I feel... Uh, and, and this is, you know, um, drinking is the most intimate experience I've ever had. Uh, it was so intimate and so important to me that nothing could stop me. I think that when Alcoholics Anonymous actually gets involved in actually stopping someone from drinking, it's beyond description. For those of us who know what it's like to not be able to stop drinking, even if you want to, people who understand that understand it. That in the middle of the night, in between breaths, no matter what I've told you, no matter how important it is for me to not drink, when I act without sense, without explanation, or without reason, and I drink again, and nothing, nothing interrupts that process. For this to interrupt that process is unbelievable. So here, you know, we have a bunch of guys hanging out with their sponsor and hanging out with one another and making another demonstration of the kind of relationship that's necessary to facilitate this incredible thing that, in my case, nothing else achieved. Not the love and dedication of children who adored me, of a wife who loved me, a family that was dedicated to me, incredible opportunities as a business person, as a, a person in my community who had the respect and attention of the people around me. So for me, the kind of intimacy that this reflects um, is overwhelming. And for me to, uh, to be a guest in your tradition here, in what happens in, in this AA group with these kinds of relationships, it's a really big deal for me, you know. And um, uh, love, Bob, you know, we're just, we... We depend on each other in a real specific way. We have fellowship. We don't have friendship. I'm really not much interested in friendship anymore. Uh, it's a pain in the ass. And, uh, uh, oh, my God. I, I just, you know, if I took all of the ten steps I hear in a month and just lay off the ones that are based on friendship, you know, count me out. Thanks very much. Uh um, you know, we have the kind of thing that so many other of us, I hope you have a ton of it, which are these, these connections that I move in and out of with tremendous ease and grace that are very pleasing and satisfying. If I'm scared of the group I'm in and I'm scared of the people in the group, you know, I'd rather join a concentration camp. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what the hell that's even about, you know. Um, my spot, and I, Bob, I, you know, this is the only house that I've been at that's big enough to have its own gift shop, which I think is really, uh, uh, I'm sure if you're new, you just probably see it as a fire sale, but, uh, <laughs> the guys who came in with light luggage will, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I work alone, but thanks a lot. Uh, and I, I, uh, 
Well, uh, one one thing I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you, and it's uh, I'm gonna ask your help with something, and it's no small thing, and I'm really serious when I ask you about this. Please don't take anything I'm talking about personally. I don't know how you should be doing this thing. I don't know the right way to do inventory. I don't know the right way to have a sponsor sponsor relationship. I don't know how to have the best AA group in the world. I just don't know. Believe me when I say that. I really mean that because I'm telling you I wouldn't be here. Or I'd be here and just be pissed off. Pissed off and over sober. You know, and just <laughs> over sober. And uh, Bob and I had a wonderful talk about, you know, about uh, what to do a workshop about. And the workshop is about a design for living. And uh, that's what I'm going to talk about. And uh, I'm going to repeat some of the stuff you've already heard in terms of subject matter. I don't think it's really possible to talk about a design for a living without talking about relationships. And, um, but if I, uh, if what I'm saying uh, isn't in agreement to what your sponsor's saying, listen to your sponsor. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm giving you something that might be completely out of context for what you're. Uh, I will tell you this: if you look at what I'm saying, it's very hard for me to believe that there won't be that, no matter how different it might sound, that there is a signalness of purpose that we share and a commonality about the kind of spiritual growth that we're trying to attain so that we'll stop drinking and stop dying. I can almost guarantee, unless you are worshiping Satan, that, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, Satan's an outside interest. We could very well, you know, I don't know if Rosemary's baby is here, but there you go. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, it's been really, guys. Got to no no crosstalk. Seriously, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. It'll be a very long morning. Um, uh, it's been my experience uh, that I became very uncivilized from um, from drinking and taking drugs and uh, growing deeper in the disease of alcoholism. The, the, the spiritual illness of alcoholism, the anatomy of it is resentments, the defects of character that fuel them, fears, and sexual misconduct. What does that have to do with alcoholism? It actually is alcoholism. It's actually the fifth wheel, the bizarre, unidentifiable extra element that plucked me beyond the opportunity of being helped by well-meaning members of the clergy, doctors, etc. Um... So to develop a practice, spiritual practice, which in my case, and this isn't a brag, it's just the truth. I'm, I'm here to share my experience. For 22 years, I have uh, been doing a spiritual practice without interruption. I haven't spent any appreciable amount of time. I haven't gone through a period where I stopped going to meetings. I haven't spent uh, a couple of months or a couple of years of not doing the discipline here. It's just my my experience. So I'm, um, uh, you know, and I, there's a guy in my neighborhood who used to say, well, I love this. New guys, uh, now and again, we get pissed off about, you know, time. You know, what's the big deal about time? And my buddy would say, if you don't think that, you know, that time's a big deal, why don't you get some? Uh, which I, I thought was a good idea. And um, uh, if you're new, I'm not as close to my next drink as you are. I'm not. I'm not telling you that I'm cured, and I only have till 12 o'clock tonight, but if you're new, your drinking muscle is a lot stronger than mine. You've been working out, and I haven't been. My not drinking muscle is a lot stronger than yours. It ought to be. 
That would really make a lot of sense. If it's not, then there's really something really fundamentally wrong here. And that's good news, you know. Um, <clears throat> the situ- the uh, process of becoming re-civilized, I can describe that as what has been my experience as a member of AA. I became increasingly more uncivilized, drinking. Things that I would never do, I did. Things that I would never, ever do, I did them and then did them again. Um, and uh, um, and life situations, uh, the kind of abusive father that I became, those were things that weren't even on the table for me. And I wound up being much, much worse than I had ever imagined possible. And for me, and when we talk about ideals, we talk about uh, um, uh, developing a design for living and having a design for living, I had the process of sobriety for me has been to rearrange my life to accommodate sobriety. God knows I spent enough time spent rearranging my life to accommodate uh, drinking. You know, it says in our sexual inventory, which for me has it's it's the most beautifully presented and expressed uh, piece about moral psychology, about uh, about. Um, personal examination with a moral application, you know, and, and Silkworth in the doctor's opinion says we long felt that some form of moral psychology was going to be necessary. Now, when I was in therapy, and I was in therapy for 18 years before I got here, I was going to be dead, but I was going to understand it. Um, uh, that, uh, um, you know, and, and by the way, I'm not indi- indicting therapy in, in any way. As a put, you know, we had a speaker today who talked about his experience with therapy. Mine is completely different. I have not only benefited from therapy, I use it now. It's been a tremendous boon to me in, in, uh, in, in getting some help in situations that I've needed help with in AA. I want to hasten to add that I've never done anything in a instead of AA. Everything I've done has been because of AA. The experiences I had in therapy was being guided there because of my 10-step work. So this isn't crosstalk or it's a disagreement. We've both been, as our speaker pointed out, his quest is to walk toward a spiritual development. That's my quest. We've implemented it in different ways. I want to spend talking uh, a minute talking about something academic because it's really interesting to me. If you aren't familiar with the works of Harry Tebow, uh, I, I, I urge you as a member of AA to take a look at the stuff. You can get his collected um, articles uh, a lot of different places. Hazelden uh, uh, prints them. And is this outside literature? Yeah, it's not conference approved. <laughs> he sent us the first female member of AA. He was Bill Shrink. It's hard to do a big sidestep around him. And uh, um, uh, and and one of the things that he talks about that is so interesting to me, if you read his papers, is before Sigmund Freud came around, therapists did something that they called treating the symptom. So if you came to a therapist they, and you drank, they stopped you from drinking any way they could, locking you away, putting you away, giving you drugs that made you sick, anything they could do. If you had a sex problem, whatever the problems were, they treated the symptom and then the other stuff was secondary. Freud comes along and he discovers a little something called the unconscious. And he comes and he says, that, that's fine or well, but the reason why you're not having a lot of success is that if you don't get to the deeper underlying causes and conditions, if you don't analyze, if you don't delve into the past and free associate, they're not going to stop. If you get to the reasons, they're going to stop it. And Thibault then says something really revolutionary in global psychotherapy. He says, you're right, but with ther- but you can't do it with alcoholics. 
I believed in Freud. He was one of the guys who changed his modalities when Freud came along. And Thibault says, you, it's all true, but if you do it with alcoholics, you'll have very well-adjusted corpses. <laughs> they, they have to stop drinking. You cannot treat people who are still, you, in fact, have to treat the symptom when it comes to alcoholics. And that's one of the reasons he had a lot of success, where a lot of other therapists didn't, who were clinging on to this other idea. Now, also, Thibault has an idea that we in, um, uh, there's two ideas that I don't think are accurate. Oh, there are more, but I'll just talk about two. Uh, oh, he says in his papers that, um, that Alcoholics Anonymous only works for alcoholism. Now, we know that that's not true. We know it's not true. There's something I also don't think my personal experience is true, that Alcoholics Anonymous can handle everything. That I think that there's a gray area. I think there's a gray area between AA only being able to treat alcohol and AA being able to treat everything. I, I think that there's a gray area. It's the gray, it's the area that I pretty much live in. As, you know, and again, it, to, to have the kind of design for living that I have today has been born of the fact that, um, again, I've never done anything instead of AA. Everything I've done has been because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, one of the biggest, um, uh, enemies and difficulties and obstacles that I've had to my spiritual growth. Cause I gotta tell you guys, um, it says in our book, we have the thing that's in the bottle. And if I don't continue to have the thing that's in the bottle, I'm gonna become one of the frozen chosen and I'm just gonna go mad. I'm gonna just, in my area when I got sober, there were a lot of old timers who were, shut up, you're a moron. If you're new, you're lying, you're an idiot. And you know what? I have stayed away from those guys for 22 years. I've stayed the hell away from them when I was new. I stay the hell away from them now. Uh, that doesn't mean um, I went to a lot of speaker meetings. I shouldn't have been at participation meetings, not me personally. I, I, I didn't. I have seen so many people share their way out of AA. I personally think that the podium is one of the most abused and, and least understood tools for recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know because I've used it so poorly on more than one occasion. Uh, uh, when I use this podium as a barrier between me and AA instead, uh, uh, instead of a bridge to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, then I know I'm in real trouble. And, um, and uh, how many times have I seen people in the sobriety, 5, 10, 15 years or more, where Alcoholics Anonymous becomes this very flat, gray, cardboard thing that just turns to ashes in your mouth, where I'm doing the same thing over and over again, and I'm, you know, faith without works are dead, but you know what? Works without faith are dead. That at a certain point, my faith is going to disappear if it's not backed up, you know, by faith and, and vice versa. If my if my actions are just actions and they're not tethered to a spiritual endeavor, then eventually it just becomes it just becomes a rote, hollow exercise, and I don't think it looks real good to the new guy. And uh, so I have had to many, many times in my sobriety, and this is why I've got friends with as much and more time than than me. That when we're talking on the phone, we're talking about what we're doing now. What are the tools? What prayers? What spiritual teacher are you listening to? What are you doing? If I could give my sons one book, only one book, it would be the gateway to all the other books. And I think if you read the big book of AA, to not view it that way is a, is a mistake. 
I believe Alcoholics Anonymous is the gateway to all the other books. In Step 11, it says there are many practitioners. There are many teachers. There are many different practices. Some of us go back to our chosen religion and find that we're able to reinvigorate and have a much more robust experience in that religion that we were able to before. Some of us find that it was even, even a worse idea, you know, now, you know. So I've been led to Eckhart Tolle and Pemin Chodron, who's a... a, a uh, a Buddhist nun, to Anthony DeMello, who's a Jesuit priest. I grew up in the Bronx for, in a Jewish family. Um, Eckhart Tolle, who's uh, a German spiritual teacher, real big in my family. Uh, and, uh, um, <laughs> and I'm, and I'm still, I'm still looking. And I want to tell you something. I, my sponsor is over 70. He's got over 40 years of uh, of sobriety, and he's like talking to an eight-year-old kid. My sponsor I had before him, who died 33 years sober, 60 years married, um, over 80 years old, and he sounded like a, an 11-year-old. Oh, man, I got this thing. Read this book. I just wrote this thing. I just read this thing. Let's go here. Let's do that. Alcoholics Anonymous was founded by a bunch of niacin-eating, acid-dropping, Ouija board-playing wackos. You know, and any time people get into my face and put their finger in my chest and say, that's the way it is, I go, thanks for sharing, and I won't be back. You know, uh, I my life has been so invigorated by seekers. And, you know, uh, and again, not instead of AA, because of AA. Something that is going to enhance my experience of Alcoholics Anonymous. If I can, if I stop bringing that to a newcomer, I just don't know. And new guys know. After a while, believe me, I've ne as a new guy, I was never confused about whether or not someone was excited about Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and until I, and there was this idea in my neighborhood that the, the, the old timers who were, you know, who that, their deal was, were kind of, they were wise. You had to understand because they had a lot of information. And until I stuck around long enough just to realize that they were just pissed off and mean, pissed off and mean, a bonus, that uh, there was no hidden, there wasn't any secret. There was no wise secret. Also, these particular guys never troubled me with a lot of information about the steps. Never weighed me down. Uh, that was never a big problem. Um, <clears throat> I've had a lot of problems in sobriety. No, no, really. And um, I... I <laughs> <laughs> I, know, <laughs> I know people who haven't had problems, and I'm oh so happy for them. And um, and by the way, I'm kind of making a joke, but I'm really quite serious. I, I don't need people to have have problems for me to think they have a genuine sobriety. It's not necessary. I happen to have had a lot of problems, and I'm going to talk about some of them with you because I want to show you what I've done and the kind of design for living I've had and what I've had to go to do to any lengths to do something that um, that has been so important to me, which is to take the things that I continue to suffer from and make them a real piece of business. Alcoholism is a real piece of business for me. 22 years I haven't had a drink, and I don't drink even when I don't when I'm not concentrating. No, I'm not drinking. I don't I don't drink when I, even when I'm not staring at a drink saying I won't drink you. <laughs> and why? Because I have taken I have rearranged my life to and had a spiritual experience sufficient enough to bring about a personality change so in that most intimate of experiences 
where I acted without reason, without sense, where my alcoholism would go below the horizon and stop presenting itself as a real piece of business, and I wouldn't, and I, I couldn't hold it. I couldn't keep it above the horizon, no matter what I did. And sometimes it would stay a real piece of business because something great had happened or something horrible would happen. But it's up there on my own juice, and eventually it's going to go away. And even if I'm burying one more friend who's drunk himself to death the same way I drink, even if it's when I've reached across the table, which happened to me, and my six-year-old son saw my arm coming near him, and he went like this, and my heart fell out of me because I realized I had become so repulsive to my own kid that it wasn't, it was, it, there was no guile there. He was so repulsed by me, it, he couldn't even be near me. How does such a thing happen? I couldn't have loved my son any more than I did. But uh, uh, somebody who didn't understand my sickness and the, and the spiritual anatomy of it will say, what are you talking about? You can't tell me you loved your son. Look at the way you've comported yourself. My sons have received 21 birthday gifts on the day of their birthday that they wanted. Not once in 21 years have they received the day after radioactive guilt gift from the only place that would still take a hot check from me. You know, here's some drywall, boys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, all the kids are loving the drywall right now. <laughs> it's Pokemon drywall. <laughs> and I'll tell you why I knew they wanted them. Because I asked them what they wanted. I killed him. <laughs> because uh, I asked them what they wanted. Nutty idea, another wacky idea. Instead of going around and finding out the, the gift that I thought would make me look good and spend uh, too much money on it, you know. Um, <clears throat> so I'm gonna. I want to talk about one of the problems that I had in sobriety. At one point in sobriety, I have an eating disorder. What does that have to do with sobriety? Absolutely nothing, unless you're going through it. Absolutely nothing, right? I went up to 320 pounds. I uh, had some real severe problems with it. So I'd write inventory about it and read it and then go eat a bowl of spaghetti and a pie. And um, and what was the problem? Well, the pro same problem was with my sexual problems. I, In order to have sex, before I got sober, I needed, you know, a pound of Peruvian marching dust and a staff. And um, <laughs> that's what I required. And... Uh, and uh, I was a part of a, of a home group at that point that uh, I had to leave when I was 10 years sober. I had to leave the home group and I had to leave my sponsor. And there was a tacit agreement being made in this group, which the, uh, the more I think about it as time goes on, the worse it, an idea it becomes. And the idea was, I don't know if you've ever run into this in sobriety, which is you do this, you gamble, you fuck around on your wife, you do that, but you're, you can do anything in sobriety as long as you're willing to pay the price. Now, the, the, the many insane things, components to that, the award winner to me is the fact that you actually, th why would you think that you could pay the price? I don't care if you're willing to pay the price. What in your brain makes you think that you're going to be able to? Virtually the entire book, big book of AA is, is, um, is engineered to drive home one point. That the time and place will come where you'll have no mental defense. You will not. It doesn't matter what you're willing to pay and what you're not not willing to pay. Now, what does my sexual problem have to do with sobriety? What does my weight have to do with sobriety? What does my um, my chronic debting have to do with sobriety? Absolutely nothing, unless you're going through it. Now, I personally have a lot of resentments against myself. There's some discussion and consternation about that that you can't have a resentment against yourself 
or you can. I, I have no interest in entering that. It's a, it's not, it's not a worthwhile argument to have. I know that I hate me, and I hate me. I, but I really hate you more. I, I, I've always hated you more. I'm not a suicide guy. I'm a homicide guy. I've always been a homicide guy. I vastly prefer your death to mine. I always have. I, I've always had this imaginary headline in my head: Scott Redmond kills wife, kills children, and refuses to commit suicide. Um, <laughs> And I'm not knocking the suicide people. This is not an indictment of the suicide people. It's just where I go. I'm resentful at Scott for uh, being irresponsible, for being in debt. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects in me that if God were to remove, the resentment would be gone? What is it in me that if God were to remove, the resentment would be gone? Well, I'm irresponsible. I'm not living in today. I'm stubborn. I'm not trusting in God. I'm filled with shame and filled with guilt. I'm resentful at Scott for being overweight. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects? I'm a glutton. I'm self-serving. I'm not letting anything else nourish me. I'm ashamed. I'm a people pleaser and a mind reader. Mind reading has probably been the most... One of the most awful defects for me in and out of sobriety. I think I know what people are thinking. And uh, I never yet to this day have ever caught anyone thinking anything good. Uh, they, <laughs> they're always thinking, you're a hosebag. And, uh, and you'll always be a hosebag. And uh, my wife, I've said this a lot, but I just, I love it because it's awful. She... She said to me once, you're not a mind reader, you're barely a mind user. <laughs> and it was, you know, I, what had happened was I had finished her last 15 sentences for her. And she said, you know what, honey, get, give me a shot at a whole sentence. And if I run into trouble, I'll signal you and you can just dive in. <laughs> So I read it and I repeat the behavior. I'm resentful. I have uh, guys who um, who are addicted to the happy ending, guys. What can I tell you? And uh, um, just can't stay out of massage parlors, you know. And um, full release sobriety. And um, uh, and on top of the <laughs> on top of the. Um, Sexual inventory, which we'll talk about, there's, there are resentments connected to this. I'm resentful at blank for just continuing to go back. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects? Lust. It's a funny thing. Being sexual, there's nothing wrong with that. Being hungry for food, there's nothing wrong with that. Wanting to have some nice things. My... My son has this girlfriend who's, I think, one of the funniest human beings I've ever heard. And he spilled something on one of her antiques. And she hugged him and said, oh, sweetheart, you know what? I can have nice things or I can have you. <laughs> <laughs> and he knew it was meant to comfort him. He, he knew that if he dug long enough, there was going to be some comfort there. At any rate. <laughs> <laughs> so I I read it and um and then and then I repeat it and uh and in the case of something like hunger which is a good thing of wanting to have some nice stuff you know some ambition there's nothing wrong with being ambitious with wanting to achieve wanting to ha have some stuff for my family 
Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. If you take any of those qualities and attach power to them, they produce a defective character. If you take hunger and attach power to it, it becomes gluttony. If you take sexuality or feeling amorous and attach power to it, it becomes lust. And I love that as an acid test. Because if it means to me that if I've attached power to these things and they become a sickness, then there's got to be a methodology of detaching the power from it and it becoming a nice part of my life that I can enjoy. You know, um, very typical in alcoholics, and I'm basing this on 22 years. I started working with drunks when I was about a year sober, so it's 21 years of consistent work with drunks, that part of becoming uncivilized has been this that thinking that a fantasy is a is a game plan. That's why they call them fantasies. They're actually not plans. They're fantasies. So this this notion that if I think it, I'm going to do it is a very infantile notion. Um, one of the things, if you read Tebow, that he talks about over and over again, is that the one of the prevalent, overbearing, overwhelming qualities of alcoholics is immaturity. And when they first studied this, Bill was waiting for something quite different. He wasn't looking for immature. He was looking for one hell of a guy or smart, you know, <laughs> above average intelligence, alcoholics. Only heard it at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Never heard it anyplace else. Never heard it at an Al-Anon meeting, ever. Alcoholics above average intelligence. And yet I've had people come up to me, I've shared that in meetings and had guys frothing at the mouth saying, there's data! Uh, <laughs> um, but I've worked with so many guys who uh, part of the civilizing process, again, is starting to see fantasies and, and appreciating them as a fantasy, that I can actually enjoy a fantasy without being plagued by this idea that I've got to have this nutty idea, you know, or that I've got to be scared that it's going to happen. You know, if you're new and you're having drinking dreams, I don't think that means you're going to drink. And I don't think it's personally, it's been my experience, it doesn't mean I'm close to a drink. I defy you to produce one normal human being who dreams about drinking. I defy you to produce one normal be human being who dreams about paddling down a river filled with beer or walking into a palace made of cocaine. I don't know any normal people who do. I do. I've had those dreams. Um, that means I'm an alcoholic. I don't think there's any firmer proof of... Uh, and, and an opportunity to work step one at depth, that if you're having the, if, and, and Silkworth talks about it so beautifully and so, it just shakes me up when he says in the book, he says in the doctor's opinion, you might, and I'm paraphrasing, you might ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I sponsoring basically this group of, this spiritually based group that's unscientific? Why would I do this? And he says, come work with me for a while. Come live at my house for a while. Come live in my office for a while. And then he says, let it become part of your life and part of your sleeping hours. He was dreaming about it. You know, it's such an interesting thing to me because I think that Tebow and, and Silkworth and people like this who really genuinely wanted to work with drunks and just would watch people slip out between their fingers and just keep dying over and over again. When Alcoholics Anonymous was proposed to these guys, a lot of them grabbed onto it like like us. Like the, like the starving man finding food, like a man in the desert finding an oasis. They found like the missing key and were actually able to bring a lot of this wealth of experience and data and actually apply it to something that really worked, really worked for the first time. 
I love their exuberance. I love what happens. But one thing, I'll just a word of warning with Tebow is please remember, if you read him, he's not writing to us. And that's one of the most difficult things about reading it. He's writing to other members of the, of the medical profession. And it's an important thing to realize because it doesn't, some of it doesn't sound relatable to us. Well, I couldn't do that as a drunk. Well, he's not writing to us, you know, which is just an important thing to remember. So if I go, in, uh, I follow my 10th step and I go uh, take a look at 6 and 7, because for me it's really the fulcrum of change. I want to change this thing that's happening to my body. I want to stop uh, going into debt. I want to uh, uh, be able to support my children. I want to stop borrowing money. I can't stop borrowing money. A couple of months before I got sober, my wife was hawking me about something. And this is where we wound up. This was our budget. I said, give me a figure. She said, what? I said, I want a figure. I want to know right now what it will cost to shut you up right now. Shut up, shut up, shut up. What is it going to cost me? And without batting an eye, she said $10,000. I left the house. I came back with $10,000. I threw it on the table and I said, shut up. <laughs> I got a thousand bucks a minute for 10 minutes. That's what I got. And it wasn't worth it, okay? I should have got an hour a thousand an hour. <laughs> so the Buddhists say what we would like. Many Buddhists say, I'd like to stop suffering, and I'd like to not be afraid to die. Boy, that covers a lot, doesn't it? What a message I could bring to a new man if I wasn't suffering or if I had a solution for my suffering and I wasn't afraid to die. What a powerful message. If I take a look at this world around me, some of it very unsatisfying and terrifying and scary, that's not the message they're carrying. They're not carrying a message of stopping suffering, and they're certainly not carrying a message of, of, of um, there's a lot of fear of dying and, and stuff like that out there. So it says in 6 and 7 that I go over the first five propositions in the book. What am I not doing? I continue to write these 10 steps and be mad, furious at myself for being a debtor. And then I have this other thing to top it all off. People in AA are just bad. They're bad. They're doing things wrong. They've got crazy sick groups. They're approaching it the wrong way. They don't even take attendance right. They're just, it's, they're, it, it's bad, you know? And, and, uh, um, and I gotta tell you, I used to have this crazy idea when I was drinking that I could have a successful life separated from you. And I know how crazy that was and how impossible it is to be able to navigate myself through this world with some grace and some honor and a good feeling about myself and you and to be separated from you. How is such a thing possible? So if that's not possible, how can I continue to think that I could stay separate in AA and have a successful Alcoholics Anonymous experience? How can I think that I'm do AA better than you and be successful in AA? How can I allow people to look at me in the eye and use their past good deeds as an excuse for their abominable behavior in Alcoholics Anonymous and have a successful experience? How can it be okay what I used to confuse ego reduction with insulting someone. <laughs> it has nothing to do. One is that's why they have two different names for them. 
<laughs> ego reduction and insulting. You know, I think when I insult a newcomer, really what I proved is what a dick I am and not necessarily how, how much he's going to have to change the way he views himself. Besides, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what he thinks. What it matters is what's happening to me. Is my behavior in Alcoholics Anonymous drawing me closer to you? You know, I see, I walk into this room today, I see guys, you know, guys I know from all over the country who I've had recent, real, in-time, real experience in AA and people from Louisiana to North Dakota, East and West. And I, I have no, I got, I walk into this room with all these guys, I got no crap, I got no crap with anybody here, I've got no business. You know, if I did, I'd know what to do about it. What, what freedom, what an incredible design for living. You know, before it would just be a, you know, a lineup of different kinds of wreckage. You know, I opened my mouth to switch feet here. This guy did that. This guy was thinking poorly of me. This guy, you know, it's hard to catch people thinking behind your back, but you can. You got to accuse them of it all the time. You know, you'll, you'll get them eventually. No question about that. <clears throat> um, do I think that there are bad things that go on in Alcoholics Anonymous? Do I think that AA is misused? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, if you're having sex with a newcomer, don't. I have another suggestion. Um, go to a hospital, go up to ICU, find a woman on life support, unplug her, have sex with her, and then plug her back into the life support. It's the same thing, pretty much. Um, <laughs> to me, the idea of having sex with a newcomer is like... Um, it's like having somebody in front of a church, and as women come in, say, you know, I'm going to bone you a couple of times, then you can come to services. But, you know, we want to want to get you right before you uh, get up there. So I, um, <laughs> but thank God I'm so spiritually developed, I judge no man. So I, uh, but I'll tell you, there's a difference between a judgment and an evaluation. And although... <laughs> Although that sounds like a mighty handy end run, the fact is, is I have had to make some evaluations as a member of AA that certain things for me are not okay in Alcoholics Anonymous. Here's the problem for me. The problem for me is if I make the evaluation that it's not okay for me and then I make the judgment of you because you're still doing it. That's where the sickness begins for me. That's where I'm separate from you. There are behaviors that I believe are not excusable, but none of them are unforgivable. If they're unforgivable, I'm doomed. Um, there were things done to me as a kid that are not excusable. They're all forgivable. They have to be, but they're not excusable. They weren't okay they were when they happened, and if they happened now, they still wouldn't be okay. There are things I did to my sons as a father that are not excusable. My sons have pretty much forgiven me for all of them. That didn't have to happen. I'm pretty lucky. You know, I'm pretty lucky that that happened. Um, so uh, I go over the first five propositions of the book, and it says, am I trying to make mortar without sand? Have I really done these things? So I take a look at just money. You know, have I really taken, I, because I continue to hate myself, for the way, for falling into debt and not doing the right thing with my money. And I'm particularly annoyed with you for having money. Uh, that just pisses me off. No end. You know, uh, what a life to live where 
if I am actually, um, um, if I'm experiencing joy because of your success, I've got an unending, um, it's like being on a hamster wheel of love. It's just this unending source of pleasure and enjoyment and satisfaction and excitement. And when I live in that world, and I have lived in that world where your good fortune and good grace and happiness diminishes my experience of life, <laughs> it's just, it's like being new. And you know, when I was new, I was a shit magnet. I just seemed to be a magnet for any shit in the universe. We just find me and adhere itself to me. And um, and I used to think it's because I went looking for it, and I think that's true. But I think it also. I just um, one of my spiritual teachers talks about how pissed off people tend to get uh, attacked a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, I was wondering why I pissed people off so much. Uh, I, uh, but I have actually experienced that. I've exp I, I think that there were times, you know, and um, it was talked about before. I I don't I don't. Uh, um, when I examine my uh, resentments, I don't examine my part. I, I went, my resentment against Nazis for slaughtering Jews during World War II, I had no part. Uh, um, and I understand what people are saying, and I have no, I don't, I'm not nitpicking. I just, what's been very helpful to me is, what are my defects? What could possibly be my defect in my resentment against Nazis? How about nothing? Okay, but I'm going to die because I don't just experience this as dislike. I re-experience the hatred. So that when I wake up, I water it like a little flower. I have to make sure it's developing properly. You know, the worst thing, worst thing is when I forget to hate something, you know. And the guy goes, hi. And I go, hi. Oh, I hate him. Why did I do that? Yeah. Now I'm going to have to redouble my snarling and glowering and snubbing just to get back where we were. Yeah. Uh, you know? <laughs> and, and, and part of that is this spiritual pride, one of the most difficult things that I've had to take a look at as a member of AA and as a sponsor and as a participant has been taking a look at entrenched power and um, and fixed ideas in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, uh, there are people who lead groups. There's no question about it. To say that there are people who lead groups, I'm the leader of a group. Whether I like it or not, I am. There's a big problem inherent in being a leader of a group. There's no rotation. Okay, there's rotation in everything else in AA. If you're the leader of a group, and there are plenty of leaders of, of groups, there's no rotation. So what can I do? I have to take a look at that. I have to take a look at rotation in my family, you know, because if I had my way in my family, my wife would have a, uh, I don't know, a mattress strapped to her back. And, um, and, uh, a lot, then there'd be a lot of, you know, big sugar licks around the house. Uh, um, that's, that's Scott Redman's architectural digest right there. That's, wow. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, what is the value? I mean, we all, if, if you have any experience of the traditions and experience in AA, you know that where there's no rotation, there's spiritual sickness. It's a violation of the traditions and a big violation of the 12th tradition. You really start, you really, it's very hard to have, have anonymity. But it's possible. You have to aggressively seek humility. Now, I know people say if you're talking about humility, you're not experiencing it. Absolutely untrue for me. And thank God untrue for a lot of people, because if I hadn't heard a lot of guys share about this stuff, I wouldn't have a lot of the lessons they have. 
about actions that they're taking to make sure that they that they don't become head drunk. You know, and again, can you imagine, because I've seen it and it's just, boy, it's just unbelievable, the idea of me looking in my son's eyes and saying, you know what, son, I know I was incredibly cruel, I humiliated you in front of your friends, but I've really helped you a lot. I can't imagine anything worse to say to a kid and anything emptier. And yet, in AA, I know that I've used past good deeds as an excuse for bad behavior. And uh, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. So with these things that don't go away, with these things that, because I, I want to have a design for living. I just don't want to talk about it. I really want to have it. It's going to require some uh, some real sacrifice. I mean, it says in our book, you know, the price has to be paid, the destruction of self-centeredness. I'm going to have to find a way to do this on some kind of level. So I go back to the five, first five propositions. Am I not really admitting that I'm powerless over Money. Am I not really saying that I, my life's unmanageable around money? And if it's step one, what can I do that's going to demonstrate that? In OA, it was, I got, you know, the voice said, go to OA with my, my food. And I said, what else you got? Um, and that was my trek there. And then I had a fun. With money, it was a different thing. I had to become willing to write down my money. I had, uh, I had to become willing to protect my wife protect myself from my wife's thing with money. I got my own bank account. I had to separate myself completely from my wife financially. Now again, I don't, I'm, I, I, this is difficult and I, I, this is an Alcoholics Anonymous function and I know I'm talking about, so I, believe me, this is not stuff I talk about at AA meetings. Believe me. I, I never would. I've been asked by Bob to do this workshop and talk about a design for living. For me to talk about this and not talk about this, I just, I don't know what I would talk about politics and art for an hour. I don't know what the hell I would talk about. Uh, again, because I've had a lot of these problems and they've been real, real blocks to me really enjoying of having the thing that's in the bottle. You know? Um, <clears throat> is it step two? Do I not really think... I think God can keep Saturn on its axis, but not balance my checkbook. Or is it step three? Have I not really admitted that I am, that I have not really made a decision to turn my will in my life over, that he's going to be my, the father, I'm going to be the son, he is going to be the leader, I'm going to be the agent. You know, and, and deeper into step three, have I not found a way to, to show my victory over this, to, to use it to implement me helping another guy? Or is it step four, have I not actually done enough inventory on this? Or step five, and it's so poignant the way our framers put this. They say at times we keep facts about ourselves, which we later, which, which killed us. So is there actually some stuff that I'm just not telling you at all? Stuff I've done with money or plan on doing with money? Um, because me separating myself financially from my wife is not a new idea. Um, you know, I've had many a slush fund that was pointed at specific, you know, kinds of bacteria. Um, <laughs> so I've had to go back to the first five prepositions in the book with the specific thing that is blocking me from having that piece that that part of the design for living I want to participate in and I've had to say is it step two is it that I don't really don't think that God can do this then I have to take a look at faith 
One of my spiritual teachers says this thing I love. He says, you know what? There's a difference between faith and belief, and I never understood what it was. But my faith is not belief, okay? My, I like my beliefs because I believe in them. So I really like them because I do them and I believe them and they make me feel good. Faith is a completely different endeavor. Faith, and this is the most beautiful expression I've ever heard of, this, of step two. He said that faith, he for him, was the willingness to expose himself to the truth despite the consequences. What an incredible encapsulation of the purity of step two. That step into thin air. We know what you want to drink. We're asking you that when the craving to drink comes up, to not drink. Not drink. What an insane idea. When you want to drink, don't drink. Accept the craving for a drink. If the craving's coming up to drink, to spend a lot of dough, to smoke, whatever I've got on the table, whatever I'm asking for the demonstration with, to accept the craving, and then I'll become available for the removal of the obsession. But it's just like Tebow says, I have to treat the symptom. I've got to stop doing it. If I continue to do it, the chances of me finding out why are very, very limited. And what a great thing that he was able to, to, to express that to the therapeutic community. I, he certainly opened doors for doctors that they didn't ha have open, you know. And then we've got, you know, parts of the medical profession that stubbornly hang on to the idea that they can do that. And, you know, I, I suffice it to say, I think it's injured a lot of people. Probably has killed some people, you know. The only thing I ask from guys who are doing that is, you know, I point out that I'm not going to tell your doctor how to run their business, and I won't accept that doctor telling me how to shape the delivery of this this uh, uh, this spiritual message. One of the things that Thibaut talks about in his papers, which I love because it's happened to me, has anybody ever been staffed up by a newcomer? I don't know if I, I've had newcomers have had an addictionologist, a therapist, uh, and me. Uh, and I'm just, I've become part of the staff. They're staffing up. And, um, and I, 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 uh, I let it happen a couple of times. Never got an office or anything. And, um, uh, uh, or a company vehicle. Uh, and, um, uh, and I won't do it anymore. Now, why won't I do it anymore? Because I don't like the way it feels, and I, it doesn't, at the end of the day, 12-step work should be enjoyable and pleasurable. It's very hard at times, and it's sometimes very uncomfortable and painful, and at the end of the day, it should be pleasurable and enjoyable, and I should want to do more of it. I've never had a problem in AA that could be solved by sponsoring more guys that I hate. <laughs> it's never come up as a viable <laughs> solution for me. So, going back to the first five propositions in the book and taking a look at where can I enlarge my experience of these five propositions in direct relation to the specific problem that I'm having has done incredible things for me. It's expanded my spiritual, the spiritual teachings that I've taken in. It's, uh, um, and I'll, I'll show one uh, case in point that was uh, taken, I was taken to by uh, my friend Clint H., who just uh, took his light into another room a couple of weeks ago. And um, I was experiencing a resentment against um, my first sponsor, who was a great guy and who I loved, and I couldn't stop uh, uh, resenting him for a perceived wrong. I was waking up with it in my head. I had stripped this guy of his humanity and made him God. What a horrible thing to do to somebody. And... Um, and I had written 10-step after 10-step, and I hadn't gone back to the first five propositions in the book. I hadn't found the demonstration, the thing I can do, the missing link, you know. And um, 
my friend Clint basically said to me, so you've done everything. I said, yeah. He said, you did everything except forgive him. Oh, man, it was just so true. It made me nauseous. You know, I had done everything except forgive him. And I didn't understand forgiveness. I didn't. I thought forgiveness that if I forgave you, it meant I was saying you were wrong. See, I don't I have very until the until I found this thing with forgiveness, I had very bad forgiveness skills and I had very bad separation skills. I didn't know how to separate. I could leave the village after all the women were raped. The place was pillaged. uh, The cattle were poisoned Bye. Then have a good day. Once everything's decimated, it's turned into an ashtray, then I can move along with the business of life. Um, and, and what that leads you to is a terrible idea. Because let's say we have a great friendship, and then we have a terrible um, uh, separation. Then I start thinking, well, I guess we didn't have a great friendship. What the hell is wrong with me? I keep having these guys. I think they're great friends. And then we have this miserable experience together. So I guess it's a lie. We didn't really enjoy the things I thought we enjoyed. That starts making you feel insane after a while. And you know what? It's not true. I had an incredible experience with my first sponsor. I've never loved a man like I love that man. <laughs> you know, when they ask if there's an emergency number at, at work, I gave him his, that's the number I gave him. So I could stop bothering my wife, you know, for once. You know, um, um, and then I realized once I was taken to Emmett Fox and, and, and in the section of forgiveness in the, in the book, book Fox wrote called uh, The Lord's it's Sermon on the Mount. And in the back of the book, he wrote uh, this extraordinary uh, section on the Sermon on the Mount where he takes on the Lord's Prayer. Where he takes it sentence by sentence and does a chapter on each one on each sentence. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. One of the things he says is he says, if you're not forgiving anybody, how can you continue to say this prayer? You should choke on the words. How can you continue to say this prayer if you've got a bunch of people in AA who you think are a bunch of hosebags, miscreants, idiots, who don't do it right nor dangerous? Now, how about using a little spiritual alchemy and turning them into other children of God who could be spiritually sick. Well, I could show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. It doesn't mean I wouldn't warn newcomers about them. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't be careful. Here's my design for living. I want to take no shit and give no shit. What an incredible thing to have sons who live that way, huh? You know, many years ago, my son... Jesse broke his wrist in a schoolyard accident. So that's cartilage that's going to turn to bone. He's a little boy. Micah was 10 at the time. And um, he's a younger brother. Now, that can't get screwed with after it's set. And children, if it gets messed with or disrupted, can be very bad for the recovery. So they're brothers. And Jesse's a younger brother. So he's got a cast, a weapon. And, uh, right? and now the playing field's kind of level. And he can hardly wait to show his brother his cast. And uh, they're beating the crap. It's better than a roll of quarters. And uh, they're beating the crap out of each other. Five minutes he's home. They're just wailing on each other. And my older son's ready for the, the cast test. And um, and I, it was zero tolerance. It's not something I could repeat 11 times. So I yelled at Mike. I got in his face. I yelled at him and I had to shut it down. So Michael walks away and walks into his room. 
and slams the door. So I got the dad tick going now, you know, I slam the door, slam the door. So I go to the door and I open the door. And before I can unload on my son, he said, hold it a second. I didn't say you were wrong out there. You were right. But a huge guy just got in my face and screamed and yelled. I didn't tell you you were wrong. Don't tell me I can't be mad. <laughs> you know. What is that? What the hell is that? That's overcoming a fear of confrontation and telling you how I feel without telling you what to do. I never had feelings. I had marching orders for you. You know? And sometimes I hear people say, well, I didn't know what a feeling was till I came in AA. I didn't know anything but feelings by the time I got to AA. They weren't good, but that's all. I had to stop having some feelings. And my feelings are overrated. You know, they really are. I mean, I, I you know, sometimes, and then this is understandable, a new guy will tell me, well, I, you know, I'm not feeling my prayer anymore. And one of the things I, I asked them to do is to stop looking for enlightenment in a feeling. Don't look for it there. Buy your kid a good birthday gift. And see what starts rolling out from there. And I'm not saying you shouldn't feel good. I'm, I vote yes on feeling good. But to look for it there and to think that my, my intentions are disingenuous or they're not real because I'm not feeling them in that moment is a huge mistake. And it's actually disrespectful to the work that I've accomplished and all the stuff that I've accomplished in AA. You know. Um, on... Uh, May 13th, I got diagnosed with liver cancer. And um, within two weeks, I was uh, in surgery. I got a resection, and uh, they opened me up, and they found that just tons more cancer in my body. And uh, the doctor came out and sat with my wife. My AA family was out there, and you know, which always spooks them a little bit, you know. And uh, my kid was out there, and the doctor said, you know, um, we can just close him up and move on. Uh, because if we do this surgery, his chances of surviving are not great, you know. And my wife basically said to him, I know him pretty good, and if you just close him up and move on, he's going to be really pissed off. Uh, and I, I can pretty much guarantee you that if you have him open already and you just close him up, you go home with him that night because I'm not going to. <laughs> and... um so I'm in the hospital now, and I'm in day A, 22 years. And I'm telling you, I'm good. I'm telling you that I, if you sat me down and said, write up a list, all the stuff you missed out on and didn't get to do, I got nothing for the list. There's some life situations that I'd like to do. I'm telling you, would I like more? <sighs> no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I could work more in, you know. I'm telling you that I'm good. And that's based on 22 years of, of, uh, of exercising this muscle. And my son comes to me in the hospital and he says, Pop, I get that you're okay. I didn't need to tell him that. He's known me his whole life. He said, but you, I'm not. I'm not okay. I see you playing with my children. He has yet to have kids. Just got married a couple of months ago. And then I got to have that incredible talk with him, you know, the, the talk and in a different way I've had with a new guy saying that this is it. 
This is AA. I'm telling you that we have the thing that's in the bottle. I'm telling you that I now actually use my brain sometimes instead of my brain using me. I am telling you that I no longer feel that I fall down a rabbit hole where I can't stop fighting. I am telling you that I no longer feel hopeless about the gnawing problems that seem to have recidivism in my life. I live in a world with a lot of oxygen in it. And in real time, I'm telling you, I, there, I have found a solution for a lot of the things that have bothered me. And I don't, I've yet to find a solution for others. Couldn't would if you saw it, you know, I, I, and, and I got to, uh, to look at my kid in the eyes and say, sweetheart, I am telling you that I'm okay. And I want to assure you that that is not going to decide whether or not I pursue a recovery here. I am going to go after getting better. I'm going to let them treat me. I'm not really good at letting people take care of me. I'm not that good at it. I'm good at the, I'm really good at taking care of people. I've, you guys have taught me how to do that. And I have not been very gifted at doing something away. I mean, if I don't, if I don't help a new guy accept help, boy, I'm not, it's been so important for me to do that. Well, it's my turn in the bucket. And I'm doing it. I'm, do, I'm doing pretty damn good. You know, my friends call me and tell me they love me all the time. And sometimes, you know, um, they, you know, there's guys and I know that you've either felt this way or you've heard people say it. And it's so unfortunate. And it's when you hear a guy say, I don't know what to do and I don't know what to say. And here's reality. There's nothing to do and there's nothing to say except I love you and here I am. What else is there? There's nothing else. What bigger message is there? I love you, and here I am. And man, am I getting that? I'm getting it. I'm getting it. It's a rhapsody of it, you know? Um, and uh, what a message for my kid. What an extraordinary thing. The Bhagavad Gita, the perhaps the holiest of Buddhist, of Hindu books, says this beautiful thing. It talks about this guy, they're on the battlefield, they're about to start killing each other, and it's families who are going to slaughter one another. And uh, these two, uh, a god, one of the Hindu gods and a, a warrior have this talk, just as they're poised to let it out. And the message is, I, and it's the message in the <laughs> I don't think Krishna says this, but it's the message in the chapter to the family afterwards. And what the message is in the chapter to the family afterwards, when it's talking about newcomers who either become pointlessly aggressive, uh, well, aggressively trying to make up for the past by making a lot of dough and assuaging themselves of this terrible guilt they feel, or they become so uh, um, aggressive in terms of their spiritual development that everyone else looks like a spiritual retard compared to them. And, you know, that's always pleasant to be around. And um, what our framers write is we're quite sure that God wants us to have our, uh, our head in the clouds and our feet firmly planted on the ground. And what the Hindu God says, oh, I want to keep my brain in the fight and my heart at the lotus feet of the Lord. That I want to keep my brain in this fight and I want to keep my heart in that gorgeous place. And I was able to tell my son, I will keep my brain. I'm going to stay in the game here, you know. And then, um, and uh, so four or five months have gone by and, uh, and my cancer's back. You know, I found out four or five days ago, my cancer's back. I'm like, my cancer's back aggressively. 
And I spend four days really dark, really feeling like the oxygen's been sucked out of my life. And I'm overwhelmed for the second time in five months with this feeling. You know, part of me all these years, guys, I tell you, part of me has always felt that my pain is a little cheap. I don't live in Darfur. I've never been in a concentration camp. I've never had someone, a member of my family, you, you mutilated. I haven't survived a child. You know, and the guys sitting here today, some of you might have experienced just the stuff that I'm talking about right now. I've always viewed my pain as kind of easily come to compared to some of the other stuff I've seen people come through. Well, I'm having an as if now, a what if, you know, and I'm standing back from it absolutely odd because I'm along for the ride. I'm watching 22 years of spiritual practice pay off because I'm telling you I'm okay. And after these four days, and this is in real time, this is just the last few days, I realized that I was making a mistake, and I'll tell you how it came out. Do you want me to break now, by the way? Hell of a time to break. What? Um, What was I trying not to talk about? Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Um, I was talking to somebody, and um, I said, you know, I'm sick. And I said, oh, boy, this is where it happens. This is what happens to the newcomer. When the newcomer identifies with their agony, and then they make an identify identity out of it. First, they, they, they crave it, they cling to it, and they make an identity out of it. Now, how many times have we seen this with new people? And unfortunately, if people just surrender to the alcohol and they don't surrender to the other things you're talking about that the last panel was talking about that I'm talking about to find a way to experience that surrender in those other places, however I might do it, then uh, I am what I like to call, it's because it, it sums it up so well for me, ferociously defending my agony. When uh, people ask me to, have asked me to describe my mother, I say, well, when my mother says, well, we'll worry about that, she doesn't mean... That's not a figure of speech. She means get get your book out. You know, I, 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 uh, Tuesday at nine, I'm good. Are you good? We'll worry about that. It's, it's just, um, it's uh, that that's uh, that's what my family believed. But who, that doesn't mean I had to believe it. But I did. I mean, I rearranged my life to accommodate to ferociously defend my agony. And it became my identity. I became attached to it. So four days ago when I didn't say, because here's the deal, I'm Scott and I have a sickness. I'm not sick. It might sound to some of you like I'm nitpicking, but it's it's important to me. I can't start making an identity out of this sickness. So the thing that I realized what was happening to me was I had done my job really well, and I'm glad I did. I have surrendered to dying. Guys, I'm telling you, I'm okay. I, I, I've had an incredible life. I have had an incredible life. I'd like more, and I've had a life that few people even get a cut at the ball at. It is spiritually incorrect for me to not surrender to living as much, to, to surrender to living as much as I've surrendered to dying. Okay. Ten minutes, talk more, and then stop for a break? Yes. Thank you. Um, 
So what does that mean? Well, it's incredibly important. I have I have a chance to live. My numbers aren't great. They're also not non-existent. There's not they're not one in a billion. Um, I I have a chance of of living through this. Again, not I. I I don't know if any of you guys um, listen to Eleanor speakers. If you don't, boy, I I really um, I I I can't tell you how great it's been for me. I listening. If you work with other alcoholics and um, and you're not familiar with Al-Anon, I tell you, for me, it would have been a mistake, and I'll tell you why. A lot of these alcoholics, it's been really good for me. I'm not a member of Al-Anon, nor do I attend. I attend Al-Anon meetings usually when I'm at conferences. Uh, <clears throat> it's been very helpful to me in my 12-step work because I've been able to counsel guys, you know, tell them where to get literature, tell them what literature be able to sh- send them the URL for uh, Al-Anon, you know, and uh, uh, may, I can say just to a guy, you know, read Courage to Change or, 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 or you know, uh, the dilemma of the alcoholic mar- marriage or all these other things. I can say, you know, members, my friends in Al-Anon ha- have used this and it's been very helpful. I can also, uh, the Al-Anon speakers I've heard have changed my life. You know, a lot of them have really had a big impact on me. And, um... Um, at any rate, I was going somewhere specific, but my, uh, <clears throat> so in surrendering to living, as well as surrendering to dying, my, uh, my decision to surrender my will and my life over to the care of God, it's very clearly told me in our book that that's a great thing that I've decided to do this, but it'll have little permanent or lasting effect unless immediately followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things that are blocking me. And I've done a really good job of that with surrendering to dying, and now I have to do that with surrendering to living. That means I have to, that just because I have made the decision to do that is meaningless. Now I have to take a lot of actions. I have to find out what treatments are available to me, both in conventional medicine and non-conventional medicine. I have to allow myself to really put my money where my mouth is in terms of living in the day. Uh, I have to allow people to take care of me, to be open to other spiritual teachers, to recommit myself to to meditation in a way that I haven't. Um, I'm committing to meditation now with a, a thirst and a desire for relief that I haven't brought to it before. It's much more intense right now. So, um, uh, and, and you know what? My decision to do that has been very helpful to my family because I think there's also a lingering suspicion with my kids that I seem a little too okay dying. They'd like to see a gun go off, a little screaming and yelling, some running around. <laughs> you know, let's see some activity. You know, so I'm not... <laughs> I'm not just shooting a gun off and running around, although that that could be an afternoon too. But I I uh, uh, I, <laughs> I am uh, I am doing that. Um, <clears throat> Where have I been selfish, dishonest, and considered unjustifiably aroused jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness? And what should I have done instead? Not what could I have done instead. What should I have done instead? What could I have done? I could have dismounted when I realized she was dead. That's what I could have done. <laughs> what should I have done is a vastly different enterprise, okay? I should have not been in the state. I shouldn't have talked to her. 
Um, <laughs> um, so in this sexual inventory, in this 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 basically in, uh, this sealing of this spiritual relationship with God, because it says in the second and third paragraphs on page 69, if I take a look at where have I been selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate, unjustifiably aroused, jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness, and find out what should I do instead, I will find out my ideal. What is my ideal design for living going to be? What is it going to be? And in this way, I try to shape a sound, and I say, I don't say sex life, a sound ideal for my future life. And then it, it talks about this thing that to me models this idea of, um, of, uh, of moral psychology better than anything else. I join in a partnership with God. I ask God to help mold me, to help walk me towards this thing. And in partnership with my higher power, I'm going to walk toward this ideal and see it start to manifest in my life. Now, I want to tell you, when I was in therapy, none of my therapists uh, suggested that I carry the message of therapy. They suggested that I quiet down. You know, don't try not talking to anybody for a, a any time, you know, would be really good. Never was I told that my actually my recovery was going to be predicated on my ability to find out the my ideal, the kind of guy I want to be, and then stop working on that. Anytime a guy I'm sponsoring says he's working on himself, I want to say, step away from yourself, sir. Stop working on yourself. Step away from yourself. That this idea of working on myself, my my disease reacts very poorly to a frontal assault. That what has happened is once I make this decision to surrender the thing with my body, to surrender the thing with money, to surrender the thing with living, to surrender all of this stuff, once I make that decision, I decide what my ideal wants to be, and then I take a look at my real business, is where have I been selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate, unjustifiably aroused, jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness, where have I not trusted in God, playing God, been jealous, filled with self-loathing, and this is one of the reasons I don't need you to treat me like crap, you can't do me like I do me, you need a full-time staff to do me like I do me, why the hell would I possibly need your help treating me like crap, I I just, thanks, I'm covered, I'm good. Um, and then take these seemingly disconnected actions um, uh, to solve a problem that seems to have nothing to do with them. Anyway, we're going to have a little break now. We'll come back here and do some Q&A. Thank you for your kindness, your generosity, and your patience. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.